turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 12. We're going to be looking at uh, verses 18 through 27 today. And we're going to, we're going to be talking about the, uh, the resurrection. And um, so I'm a little, a little nervous today because um, this is a topic that actually has been quite misunderstood within, uh, within from, from the time of, of medieval Catholicism uh, right through until the present. Uh, the issue of the resurrection has been, has been downplayed, ignored, and when in fact it is actually the, the very hope that we as Christians possess. Uh, not the hope of heaven, uh, but the hope of resurrection. And so uh, what I'd like to do is um, we're going to look at the context of, of, of this, and hopefully that also will, will give us some insight into what's going on. Then we're going to look uh, at some other passages that, uh, that, seem to, uh, that seem to say basically what I'm going to say, and that is that the, the resurrection is our hope. It's not some, uh, some disembodied existence uh, in heaven. It is a fully embodied existence with a new body like unto Jesus' uh, glorified body, the body that he had when he was raised from the dead. And this is what we look forward to in a newly created world. This is, this is essentially our hope. And this is the Jewish hope of the first century. Now, what Jesus has done is he has... He has modified that just a bit, and we'll see how he's done it. Uh, but he essentially holds to uh, the first century Jewish view that uh, the age to come is the age of the resurrection, and that is our hope. Okay, so uh, uh, let's pray, and then we're going, to, we're going to begin there in verse 18 and look through, look, uh, go through verse 27 and uh, see what this text has to teach us. Father, I thank you for uh, this time. I, I do thank you for your word. I pray that uh, today that you would uh, be in our midst by your spirit, that you'd help us, Father, to, uh, to, uh, to understand, to, uh, to know, and to long for uh, that blessed hope and that glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. When he appears, we shall be like him, we shall be made like him, and we shall be resurrected. Father, we pray that uh, you would help us uh, today, uh, help us to think, help us to learn, help us, Father, to worship. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 18, chapter 12, And the Sadducees came to him, who say there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died and left no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died uh, as well. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as a wife. Jesus said to them, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but they are like the angels in heaven. 
And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. The context here we will see is that the Sadducees, the Sadducees, and all we're told about them here in this text is that they say there is no resurrection. Yet they are asking a question about the resurrection. They are the priestly aristocracy. They are the conservatives who are for preserving the status quo, and they are not great friends with the Pharisees, especially when it comes to matters of the afterlife. We should keep in mind that the high priest himself was also a Sadducee, and Jesus will later be led before him to discuss his conspiracies against the temple. These incidents, what he says here about the resurrection and his later claim that God will vindicate him and seat him at the right hand of power are related to one another. And we will come back, uh, we will see this uh, a little bit later when we, when we look at that section. But these incidents connect the Pharisees with the high priest at the end, and they draw together a theme that is, that is very much related. And that is that the resurrection is the place where, uh, or the place or the time when people and Jesus as the Son of Man will be vindicated. He will be seated at the right hand of power. This is a way of affirming the resurrection. So these are related to one another. His claim to vindication after, be, after suffering is a claim to resurrection. But we won't go there yet. The Sadducees, we don't know a lot about them, but the New Testament points to their denial of resurrection as their signature dispute with the Pharisees. They were the conservative group, conservative in their beliefs about the resurrection and in their, their strict adherence to Torah, primarily what we would say the Pentateuch, Genesis through Deuteronomy. Josephus says about them, the Sadducees do not believe in the persistence of the soul after death, penalties in the underworld or rewards, rewards. Wars of the Jews, chapter 2. The Sadducees hold, this is also Josephus, that the soul perishes along with the body, antiquities of the Jews. And our text confirms this. We are told in our text and in all the synoptic gospels that the Sadducees say there is no resurrection. That's what Matthew and Mark say of them. Luke says they are those who deny that there is a resurrection. So he turns it into a, a negative. And this is what we must dis discuss at this crucial point. It's imperative that we address, uh, that I address, what in my opinion has been one of the most serious errors to c come out of uh, medieval Catholicism. And I'm not picking on the Catholics here because we ourselves as Protestants have also uh, missed what is being taught about the resurrection. This lack of clarity is a lack of clarity about the final future state of people, what one has called life after life after death. For many of us, the question we ask related to death is this, did or will so-and-so go to heaven when she dies? 
That is, where will we go after we die? But I want you to notice that in this passage and all the others that, um, that we'll look at, that address life after life after death, do not talk about people going to heaven. They talk about people going to the resurrection. And some might say, well, heaven and resurrection, what's the difference between the two? You're making a big deal out of nothing. I want to show that actually it does make a difference when we discuss and use the right terminology for what we are talking about after death. Not immediately after death, but when we are raised from the dead in that future state to go into the kingdom of God. In passage after passage, the hope of the believer is the resurrection. And it's not something that Jesus alters. Time and again, he affirms that the resurrection is what we are destined for. Consider the famous passage in John 11, where upon learning that Lazarus had died, Martha says to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask from God, he will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. He did not say your brother will go to heaven. He said, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus did not rebuke her. He did not correct her. He affirms it. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who, believes, who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. In other words, says Martha, since you are the Messiah, you will bring in the deathless age. You will bring in the new age, eternal life. Now, Jesus does not say, Martha, you're wrong. You should, not be, ta you should be talking about going to heaven, not about the resurrection. No, he does not deny her eschatology. It is good, sound, Jewish, biblical, two-age eschatology. There is this present age that we are all living in right now, and there is the age to come, what we call and what the Bible calls eternal life. And we, in this present age, can experience the life of the age to come in Jesus, and this is what he's talking about. He says, I am the resurrection. In other words, if you have believed in me, you are participating in the resurrection ahead of time by faith. It doesn't mean that you're fully there, but it means that you are participating in the resurrection by the Spirit. And we'll see, uh, we'll see how Paul deals with this uh, very clearly in Romans 8. He does not deny it. He says uh, he, he affirms her belief in the resurrection and does not deny that in the last day, People will be raised from the dead. An embodied existence in a renewed earth, a newly embodied life in God's new age. He does tweak Martha's idea of resurrection, but it is only to say this, the resurrection, which you thought was only going to be at the end of the age, has come back into the present in me. And when you believe in me, you then will be in the resurrection. This is what Paul means when he says you are raised up with Christ. 
seated together with him. You are resurrected, right? You experience in some way the resurrection, and we'll see how that is. In other words, what you are hoping for in the future, a newly embodied existence, has come, come back from the last day into the present in Jesus' resurrection. That's why when he's raised from the dead, he is the model of what we in the resurrection will experience. He is, he is fully embodied. You can touch him. He can eat. He can do all these things. He is in that resurrection, resurrected body. This is what he means when he says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And he who believes in me will never die. Somehow, mysteriously, one has eternal life now. That is, the life of the age to come is living in you when you believe in Jesus. This is what Paul means when he says we are raised with Christ. If we died with him, right? If we die with him, we, were, we are raised with him. We are in the resurrection by faith, in the present, in anticipation of the coming full resurrection. I am not saying here that it's in, its, in all of its fullness. No, but it is here, like Israel, eight of the first fruits of the land before they entered into the land. They were in the wilderness, but yet they ate of the fruit of the land ahead of time. Consider Romans 8. Romans 8 is built around the following metaphor. The story of Israel's exodus from Egypt and her conquest of the land is the story of believers now. In other words, Israel's story of being brought out of Egypt and going into the promised land, Paul is using as an analogy for the believer's life now. Egypt represents death, the wilderness is our current position, and the land equals the resurrection of our bodies. We were in death, condemned by the law of sin and death, he says. We have been redeemed, freed from the slavery of sin by the sin-bearing act of Jesus. We have gone through the waters of baptism, the Red Sea. We are in the wilderness, putting to death the deeds of the body by the Spirit, he says, that we might live, that is, that in the future we might enter the resurrection. We have received the Spirit, he says in 8.14, and are being led by the Spirit. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Remember, remember when we were talking at, at, the, book, at the beginning of, of the book of Mark, and Jesus says, um, the Spirit comes down from heaven like a dove and says, uh, this is my son, listen to him. The father says, this is my son, listen to him. What's, what's happening here is, is something very similar that happened in, in the life of Jesus. We, by the Spirit, are called sons of God because we too are experiencing the Spirit of God and we are being led out of Egypt, so to speak. For all those who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And so this leading that he's talking about is working on this analogy of coming out of Egypt, being led by the Spirit into the promised land, which Paul equates with the resurrection. He says, we have received the spirit of adoptions, uh, adoption as sons, and we eagerly await the adoption as sons. In other words, the spirit is the spirit of adoption 
and we are waiting for the full adoption. That's the idea. And that full adoption is when we're in the land and we're ruling as God's son. That's, that's the picture. We ourselves, and this is, the, this is probably the most important verse here, verse 23 in Romans 8. We ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now, note the, note the way this is phrased. First of all, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. So think, picture yourself, you're Israel, you're in the wilderness, and you send spies into the land. And what are they commanded to do? What does Moses tell them to do? Bring back some fruit from that land that we might taste it. Right? So there they are in the wilderness groaning for the land, but they're able to eat from the fruit of the land. Paul says this is the analogy that I want you to think of when you think of your life. Right? Your life is you are not yet in the resurrection, but you are tasting of it. You are eating of the fruit ahead of time. And this, he says, is the first fruits of the Spirit. That's what the Spirit is doing. It's giving us a taste of resurrection ahead of time. We are tasting of the land, so to speak. And then he equates that with, and this, this is also very important, he equates the, having the first fruit of the Spirit groaning inwardly as we eagerly await the adoption as sons, which is when we're in the land, we're sons, fully sons, the redemption of our bodies. So it's an appositional phrase. He's not saying, and the redemption of our bodies. He's saying the adoption as sons is the redemption of our bodies. That means that resurrection, the redemption of our bodies, is when we receive the new body, we are fully redeemed. And that, he says, is the adoption as sons. And that is, he equates with, the entering of the land, the conquest. <clears throat> but why is this issue of resurrection important here? After the parable of the tenants, where God will destroy the tenants and build a new temple via his son. After he's talked about rendering unto Caesar and rendering unto God, and before he talks about the great commandment. Primarily this. The resurrection was and is the event where those who suffer for the sake of their obedience to God are vindicated. It is the doctrine whereby risky obedience meets the reward of vindication. It is, in a word, the kingdom of God. Remember, we've looked at some of the some different pictures of the kingdom of God as we've gone through Mark. He doesn't, he doesn't just say the kingdom of God and, and then expect us to, to pull all of these things together. He comes at it from different angles. And so to speak of the resurrection is also to speak of the kingdom of God in its fullness. It's to speak of entering that full and future kingdom of God after God's judgment upon one's enemies. Now, you can, you can probably hear, as, as I've uh, gone through a few things and uh, we've, we've looked at We've talked about the kingdom as being here, but not being here, right? So there's this already not yet idea to what we call eschatology. It is, it is the same with the resurrection. And this is one reason I think you can say the kingdom of God, which is at, in many times described as being here, 
right? And you can enter it by faith in Christ, but it's also in the future. So also with the resurrection. You can enter the resurrection, you can taste of the fruit of, the, of that land, but it's not yet here. There's an already not yet component to it. Now, why it's important within this section is that it is to speak, uh, to speak of the resurrection, that is the kingdom of God, is to speak of entering that fu- uh, future kingdom of God after God's judgment upon one's enemy. Now, you might say, you might imagine why that's important to Jesus at this time. He is about to go and suffer, right? And, and so for any martyr who is, who is taking up the cause of the kingdom of God, I'm not suggesting he's just like any martyr, but if they do not believe in the resurrection, their life is in vain. And, and, and it makes them out to be, if they do believe in the resurrection, it makes them out to be the radicals because they believe God will vindicate them after they suffer. And this is why Jesus is such a threat to, to the, uh, the, the Sadducees. The Pharisees do believe in resurrection, but the Sadduce- Sadducees do not. And so they are, in a sense, they are testing him about what he truly believes about the resurrection to see if he is actually willing to, uh, to suffer to be vindicated for it. The resurrection question that the Sadducees asked Jesus is a way to see if he is truly serious about what he has just implied by his temple actions. Remember that he has pronounced a curse upon the temple, and he has said uh, right before this, he said, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief of the corner, and it's marvelous, this is the Lord's doing, and it's marvelous in our eyes. He has implied that he's going to destroy the temple. Now, he's going to get more explicit a little bit later, but he's implied that he's going to destroy the temple and build another one. That's the important part. He is going to be a temple builder. If you think about the history of the kings of Israel, you think about David, who, who is basically the type of the Messiah, right? He's going to be David's son. What did David's son do? He built a temple, right? This is what a conquering king does. When a conquering king comes in and he demolishes a place, what does he do? He builds a temple, right? We'll see uh, tonight, we'll see he puts an image in that place as well to represent him, to be his representative. What he has implied by his temple actions here, by pronouncing judgment upon it and basically saying, I'm going to build a new temple, And what he has said about the temple by saying the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief of the corner means that we must test him, the Sadducees, we must test him to see if he truly is serious about the resurrection. Because they too, they're smart enough to know their theology. They they know that, that when a person says something about the resurrection, that means they think that's when the future eschatological temple is going to be built. So all of this is kind of working together. Does he really believe that he's bringing about the resurrection? Does he believe he's bringing about the kingdom of God where the true temple is going to be built? The Daniel 2 temple, the temple not made with hands. That's what they're after. Now to ensnare them, to ensnare him, the Sadducees introduce a scenario 
not designed to get information, but designed to mock the very idea of the resurrection using the Torah. Okay, so this is what they're after. They don't believe it for a minute, but they're going to mock him by introducing an unserious question. It's like saying, consider this scenario and you'll see just how absurd the resurrection is. That command that they're going to use is the command of Leverite marriage. Uh, we can see this in the book of Ruth. We can see it uh, played out in Judah's, uh, Judah and, and Tamar with, um, with his sons. Uh, his sons die and the, the brother's supposed to take uh, Tamar as a wife and, and raise up seed and, and they don't. Okay? So that episode is about Leverite marriage. But the command is in Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 10, uh, 5 through 10. If a, if a brothers dwell together and one of them dies and, and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go in to her and take her as a wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother that his name may not be blotted out of Israel, right? And that's, that's our, our key point. The purpose of Leverite marriage can be clearly seen in that last statement, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. So if a man has no son and dies, his brother is to have children for him with his widow, and they do not belong to the living man. They, they belong to the deceased. They take on the name of the one who has died. They bear his name. Now, this is important for this reason. Think, in, think about the, 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 way the, the way the law works, the way that um, the, the law of land and inheritance works. The land, the inheritance, is tied to the name and to the tribe. And if the name perishes, so also does the inheritance which has been allotted by God himself. And God was concerned about this for a time. We can talk about why it's no longer necessary, but um, given uh, Jesus is being made Lord of the world, but here, it, this is important, and he's not, he's not saying anything about the law. He's not saying this is a bad, a bad law. Neither Jesus nor the Sadducees deny the validity or importance of the law. Jesus will abrogate it, but he does not do that here. The Sadducees, uh, they concoct this, this scenario, and then they say, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? Jesus' answer is twofold. He says, is it not for this reason that you err, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God? What does he mean, not knowing the scriptures? He's going to explain that in the next verse. Okay, we're gonna, we'll come back to that. He says, for when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. It's verse 25. Now, uh, first, when, whenever we mention angels, we have to, we have to um, uh, clear up a few misconceptions. He does not say you will be angels. Okay, so um, sometimes we, we tend to read this as saying, oh, well, we're going to be like the angels, therefore we're basically going to be angels, which is not what it says. Okay? So he says you'll be like the angels. When Jesus uh, says that in the resurrection people are like the angels in heaven, he is simply saying 
that they are like angels in some way, in one way and one way alone. They don't get married. Now, we might think this is a bit odd. Perhaps Jesus is saying something about social relations in the new world, in the new resurrection. Uh, and for sure, he, he implies something like this, that, that there won't be quite the same arrangement that we have uh, for intimate relationships here. But he doesn't give us any more information than that about the social arrangement. His point here is that there is no marriage in the resurrection because marriage is for, we don't, in, there used to be an argument about this and now nobody, nobody even thinks about it, but marriage is for primarily one thing, procreation. That's what it's for. And so in God's new world, there is no death. And so there is no need for the marriage arrangement because there's no death. People do not die. Luke's version makes this more explicit. He says, this is Luke 20, verse 36, for they cannot die anymore. That's what he says. He makes it very explicit. So he tells us exactly why it is important. Right? So, for they cannot die anymore. This is why they're not married because they are equal to angels and are as sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. We can hear here Paul's, we can hear echoes of Paul. Remember that Luke, whenever you read Luke, remember that Luke was a travel companion of Paul. And so when you're hearing, you're hearing these echoes, they truly are echoes because Luke and Paul are, are um, working together with one another. In God's new world, in the resurrection, there is no death and the marriage arrangement, which is good and commendable and to be continued faithfully now, as we saw in chapter 10, it is divinely designed as the most beneficial arrangement for children and for the future of the human race. This arrangement is not necessary in the resurrection, and that's all that he means. What will the resurrection look like? Well, he doesn't say. What will our relationships be there? He doesn't say. But here and elsewhere, he indicates that the marriage relationship is a relationship designed for this world for one reason, people die. Where the, where the way to ensure that humanity continues and continues well is to marry. And in the first, first century Jewish context, it is the way to ensure that the land inheritance continues on with the family, bearing the father's name. So, to the Sadducees who deny the very reality of the resurrection, Jesus says they are misunderstanding what the resurrection is like. They are assuming, right, what was their question? Whose wife will she be? They are assuming that the resurrection is just like this present age with, with marriage and childbearing as the norm, that it will continue on as before even though, as we saw, they're actually denying the resurrection. These institutions are specifically designed for a world where people die. And this is why he says to them, you err because you don't know the scriptures. Jesus is not changing the story. He is not saying you are correct in denying the resurrection, but you're wrong to call it the resurrection. No, it's not just a mistake in terminology. 
He wholeheartedly affirms it, and then this is where he moves to the scriptural proof to, to back up that claim of resurrection. He says, as his proof of the resurrection itself, he could have gone to many places in the prophets, but this would not have worked for the, Fer- for the Sadducees. Why not? They just believed the Torah, right? The Torah was scripture. So if Jesus were to an advance an argument from the prophets, or particularly from Daniel, Daniel 12, where the clearest statement of resurrection is found, it would not have been accepted. The argument he advances is pulled from Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. And there Moses introduces God as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. From there, Jesus argues implicitly that the patriarchs are still alive since God is the God of the living and not the God of the dead. However, Jesus is not simply attempting to prove that people go on living after they die. He does that, but remember, this is not an argument about whether you live after you die. It is an argument about the resurrection, not simply an argument about life after death. But that is, that is all he says about it. As with so many sayings and so many stories within the Gospels, we are left to discern the meaning by implication. And this is the implication. If Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive in God's presence somehow, they will be raised in the future. And this is, the, this is his point. If they are alive now, does it mean that they're, fully, that they're resurrected, living in their resurrected bodies now? But if they are alive, and Moses describes them as, uh, as, describes God as the God of the living, then they will in the future be raised. And this is, this is his point. Not simply that they're alive in God's presence, but that he will raise them in the future. They and all of you who are in Christ, though you die, you will live. And in the future, God will raise you from the dead. You will be embodied again with a body likened to his glorious body. Luke says in his version of the same story, for all live to him. This is how he describes what's going on in, in the story in Exodus. That is, they will live, all live to Israel's God. Thus the patriarchs, though they are not yet embodied, they are alive to God awaiting that final resurrection. This is what uh, this is what is said about the intermed- intermediate state, which is actually not much, but it is enough. When we die, Paul says, we will be with the Lord, and that's about as far as, as he elaborates on it as well, 2 Corinthians 5.8. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, and that's it. That's all he says. But the most gl- And, and the, for this reason, I think, The most glorious time is that time when we will be raised to live in God's resurrection, right? God's new world, new heavens and new earth. This new heavens and new earth is the idea that the old earth will be renovated. The old earth, look at Romans 8. He discusses that there as well. This is actually the the whole thing is is moving to this end, that this current world, which was subjected to a curse, Genesis chapter 3, will be renewed. And those who have their glorified bodies will inhabit it. 
I know this sounds bizarre. It really, I know this. It, it does. But I think we have fundamentally, we have fundamentally misunderstood what is said about the resurrection. And we have substituted a disembodied uh, heavenly state for the fully embodied thing that, that Paul and Jesus and, and all, the, uh, all the apostles are pointing to. What does Paul say? He says, I, I long not to be unclothed, right, but to be fully clothed. That's what he longs for. This is resurrection. This is a fully bodied existence, the same that our Lord had. In that life, in that life, in the point of this, this passage, even procreative marriage is no longer relevant and all family, fam, family relationships have to be reworked. We don't know exactly what that looks like, but we will. To know as we are known, to see as we are seen, this will happen in the resurrection when we are raised. Not in the intermediate state where we live to God. Now, as you think about this, um, I think about this as well, and I think about it a lot. It seems to me to be a bit unsettling when we think of not continuing our relationships here as they were, right? The marriage relationship and, and all of that. And the very fact that, we, that some of us do recoil at the thought of there being no marriage relationship simply means that we lack the analogy with which to compare it. The inability to perceive of anything different or better is likely an inability that uh, we cannot overcome. The inability to perceive of anything better is a result of us not having a reference point. And it may mean that we, like the Sadducees, do not understand the power of God that our imagination has become dull and that we can't imagine anything beyond what we have here. C.S. Lewis said, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And so it is with the resurrection. Our imaginations have become dull and our inability to uh, think the thoughts of scripture has, <coughs> has become uh, desperately wounded. I invite you to search the scriptures to see how our, our assumptions and our inherited beliefs have not exactly squared with what the scriptures teach about the future of those who are in Christ. Read Romans 8. Read Romans 8 and see what he says about our hope, our hope of resurrection, our hope of a renewed heavens and earth. Search the scriptures to see how it is that we taste of the age to come in this present age by the Spirit. Search the scriptures to long for this fully being, for, uh, to long to be fully clothed, not to be unclothed, but to be fully clothed. 
where, will we, where we will be vindicated for following our Lord in his cross. That when we are judged, and we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, his judgment is without partiality. But when we are judged, we might take part in the resurrection. That we might hear, in the words of Matthew, well done, good and faithful servant. Now listen to the way he describes this. He does not describe this as, as living in a place where there's nothing going on, right? He says, you've been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. You will have a job to do, right? And the responsibilities that come are a direct in, in direct correlation with your faithfulness here. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And that's how he describes resurrection. Enter into the joy of your master.